Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskan. Call 87 237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 2nd of August. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. A decision on closing the emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital in Navan is expected to be made in September. Concern about patient outcomes have been raised by clinicians in the hospital and by the HSE at a national level. It's believed that the HSE made its very serious concerns about the risk to patients receiving emergency care known to the Minister last November, a number of adverse incidents in the hospital prompted the HSE to take the decision to close the emergency department. The HSE told the Minister for Health that a small number of patients could have poor outcomes because Navin does not have the ability to provide the type of care that other hospitals could offer them. This, the HSE says, could result in death, a preventable death or deaths. And in order to prevent an unnecessary death, or deaths, the HSE wants the hospital to stop providing emergency department care. As mentioned, it's understood that this grave warning was given to Stephen Donnelly in November, but nothing has happened at all since then to reduce that patient risk and improve safety for patients in Navin. Now, a national working group is said to be looking at the situation and it's expected to report in September. Ten months after the minister was told Navin is dangerous. Ten months ignoring that danger and ten months of complete inaction. What about this review? Well, there's very little known about it. The Minister for Justice, a a local TD, as you know, Helen McEntee, was on the programme giving us some of the detail, but we don't have the terms of reference. They haven't been published. Uh, Our uh, request to see the terms of reference have been ignored. Uh, We don't know who is heading up the review team uh, or who makes up the review team for that matter and how people were selected to be on this team because again those requests have been ignored. 
Let's speak uh, to Nick Killian, who's uh, the Kirloch of Meath County Council and an independent councillor. And a very good morning to you, Nick, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Morning, Michael. It, it is a bizarre situation, isn't it? Of course it is. And just listening to what you've actually said in relation to this working group that nobody knows anything about, that's bizarre. And uh, I go back to something that um, Mike, uh, Paul Reid said um, back, in, back in late June. He said, obviously, I take full cognizance of the government's concerns and we will address the government's concerns. But he said, I won't walk away from what has to be done here. So I'm not very trusting of the HSE and their words. And one has to listen very carefully to every syllable that they actually put out into the public domain. The people of need want Navin to continue. They want the A&E to continue. Mm. They want it to be upgraded. Well, there's no so, doubt about that. That's why people know, took to the streets. Uh, and uh, as you said, they wanted upgraded. They don't want to go to a hospital. They don't want their parents or someone else to go to a hospital uh, that could result in a poor outcome, uh, an outcome uh, that would have been much better if they were brought to another hospital or possibly dying because they were brought to the wrong hospital. So what you uh, mean by that is they want those problems fixed, I think. Well, I have spoken to two members of staff of Navin Hospital um, just uh, about two weeks ago and they've clearly indicated to me that no deaths have taken place and that... um, Incidents that have taken place have been dealt with. And yes, people have been moved from Navin Hospital to Drogheda for a particular type of care and in the, in the area of um, heart and stroke. Hmm. So one, we're all, nobody wants anybody to die. Nobody wants anybody to uh, find themselves in a bad situation. But nobody is telling us that it has happened. It actually hasn't happened from what I'm hearing on the ground. Hmm. And Navin Hospital well, I, has... I've only heard talk uh, from the clinicians of a risk to human life that, that that's yeah, well, a potential uh, problem but poor poor outcomes uh, as a result for 5 to 10% of those who use the emergency department well there's the old saying of doctors differ and, and, and patients die Doctors are differing themselves on, on Navin Hospital. There's, there's a, a strong disagreement between one cohort of doctors and another cohort of doctors and consultants uh, thrown in between. But I go back to what the people, the people want this hospital upgraded. And that's the message that we are trying to get through to Minister Donnelly, to the Taoiseach, to Leo Varadkar, who, who himself was a, a doctor in Navan Hospital in his early days. So the, the people are saying, we want this maintained, we want it upgraded. So it's about time that government ministers, right along and upwards to the Taoiseach, listen to what the people of their county is saying to them. Mm. And the population increase alone, that has to be taken into account. And as you well, know, well, Michael, just, just, on housing, mm. we have thousands of more houses yet to be built in the county. Mm. So Drogheda cannot cope itself at this stage. But did you get Manchester the opportunity to, to, to say any of this to the minister? Unfortunately not. We, we, the minister's door has remained closed, and that's a, a deep disappointment. Right. And I, I've asked my, my colleagues, obviously in, in, in Fine Gael and, and in Fianna Fáil, to see, can we get this meeting with the minister? But the minister uh, remains aloof uh, and, uh, and, wants his, and is 
pushing it away. Nice. Like when we had the meeting with um Jerry McEntee, Dr. McEntee and his staff, that was that obviously came through the HSC. I don't know whether it came through the minister or not, that the minister told the HSC to meet the the, the representation from the county councillors. So there's well, it was a, a, an odd a, a meeting. There. It was an odd. It was. it was an odd meeting when you had that meeting uh, because uh, Jerry McEntee, uh, who's uh, the top doctor in Navan, told you that there was a gagging order placed on, on him and other members of the HSE. A gagging order in June. I wonder if there's a gagging order in July as well from the minister because uh, following on from the meeting uh, that uh, you had with Navan Hospital, the HSE. Uh, were very forthcoming, asking for time on the radio station and looking for space in the Mead Chronicle uh, to uh, sell the message of why this needs to be done. Uh, And we're more than happy to discuss any elements to do with uh, the proposed closure of uh, the emergency department. They met with the councillors, yourself uh, as the chairperson of Mead County Council, and all that seems to have changed now uh, because nobody is able to tell us, as we've said, uh, and as we reported quite extensively on the programme last week, uh, if the terms of reference will be published, let alone send us on a copy of them, or even uh, something as simple as saying who's overseeing this or who's involved in carrying out the review. But this again comes back, Michael, to who's in charge here. Is Minister Donnelly in charge of his department? I mean, there was an article in the paper over the weekend about Minister Anne Rabbit on the whole area of disability mm. and the difficulties she's having with the uh, Secretary of the Department of Health. Mm. So who is running the show? Is the Minister in charge? Well, who do you think? The officials. Uh, I think uh, the officials are in right, charge. Right, because I, I, it seems to be the Minister who put the gagging order on the HSE in June, and that's what I was wondering, if something similar had happened again. I simply don't know. But from my perspective, it's the officials that are driving this. It's the officials in the HSE that are driving this. And they both seem to be at idem. How they do it is what's, where the difficulty lies. And that that's what worries me about... A, I know the, the working group is there, but that's what worries me about a month like August, that we could wake up some morning with an announcement uh, and we're told it's happening. Mm. So I, I, I am not trustful of the HSC senior management and how they operate. We have, it's nothing to do with the staff on the ground. They're working away, working hard every day of the week. And we have a wonderful staff of doctors and nurses and, and assistants in Navan Hospital working day in and day out. Like What's amazing is that the actual staff in the hospital has increased over, over the last 10 years to mm. 600 and uh, odd people working in it. So... There hasn't been a decrease in staff. There has been an increase. So we want to see that happening. We want the increase to happen on the side of the A&E and let's upgrade it. We're a county, a population of over 212,000 growing the whole time. Mm. And we need our services. And, and to be fair, we've got to be fair to Drogheda. They have their area to look after, doing a wonderful job over there as well. But they haven't got the capacity, despite what's been told or what's been said and promised. Promises are, are being made, but none are being kept. Okay, would you like being in the emergency department in Avon yourself this morning, uh, given the warnings that we've heard? Uh, I'd, have, I'd have no problem going there whatsoever. Um, when, when my father entered that hospital many years ago, 
and uh, the care and attention that he got from from mm. Navin Hospital. I was in it myself. Uh, only only had to go there once, but uh, on a back injury, and mm. I was looked after. So I have no problem going to Navin Hospital, and would be delighted to be able to go down to Navin Hospital if I had to. God forbid, I hope I don't mm. have to, mm. but I would go there this morning. No but, problem whatsoever. Yeah, but playing in most people's mind, I think, if they were going to a hospital that they were told wasn't safe, wasn't capable of providing the care that's available elsewhere uh, if you fall into that small percentage of people who need uh, emergency care that isn't available in Navin if they're brought to Navin uh, that's very hard uh, to contemplate not just uh, for those who may be in that situation or those uh, who have someone in that situation but for those who are making the decisions or for those who are not making the the decision how can that uh, warning be ignored for 10 months well Again, I come back to who's who's in charge. Is the teacher in charge of the Department of Health? Is uh, Leo Vardker in charge of the Department of Health? Who's who's doing the bidding? Well, it, it should it, it should be Paul Reid, uh, but his authority was usurped by Stephen Donnelly, uh, uh, and as a result, he's resigned. That would appear to be the case. Well, I think uh, Mr. Reid's uh, authority has been usurped by the Secretary General of the Department of Health, uh, more so than Minister Donnelly. But the situation is, uh, Mr. Reid now is in a very weak situation. He's indicated he's retiring. So where is his, where is his authority? And I wish him well. Hmm. He's, he's obviously had a very difficult. But where was his authority? He decided to close the emergency department, well, and then he was told he couldn't. He didn't have much authority when it came down to the crunch. Well, he he was he was the people of Mead had a say in it as well, Michael. And you've got to mm. recognise what the thousands of people who have marched over the last two years in the Save uh, Nav, uh, Save the Hospital mm. campaign, who've done a great job in highlighting and bringing to the people's attention of the county what's required. Mm. So well, I think we I, have to keep I, I mean, going where I, we are I, I, I think, pushing for the upgrade. I, I think you can do that and look at uh, the situation that Paul Reid was put in because uh, what happened was Stephen Donnelly, the Minister for Health, came along and said, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you, you think you're closing the emergency department, you're not doing that because it's politically toxic, right? Uh, and uh, it, it, that was something different to Stephen Donnelly coming along and saying, well, here's 10 million or whatever is needed to upgrade uh, the hospital in Navan so that you don't have to close it. Donnelly needs to find the guts to, to, to find that money from the Department of Finance and give it to Navin Hospital and upgrade it. Said it and you're quite correct. It, it, it's wrong to leave Navin Hospital hanging in the air uh, since last November. That's not fair to the staff down there. It's not fair to the doctors and it's not fair to the people of County Mead. We need somebody to come out and take a decision to do what the people of Mead have asked. Give them the money. Let's upgrade. I know that will take time, as Jerry McEntee has outlined. Mm. And Jerry McEntee also said at our meeting that he would love to see Navin be in a position where it could be upgraded and and the money put in, but it won't happen overnight because the building it's, uh, buildings and everything down there have to be adapted and, and it's a particular type of uh, area that okay, has to be but, built. But, but, but that they, has to be done. That work last, if they'd started that work last November, uh, they'd be uh, uh, some way along uh, the road anyway, wouldn't they? Well, look, Minister Donnelly needs to, uh, I hope he has a good holiday, because whatever decision he makes after this working group, he'll have to face the people at County Mead, and we're not afraid of him.
mm. in any way, shape, or form. Uh, like the mead, like the mead ladies, we we'll keep pushing and we'll keep winning. Hopefully, in this particular one, All right. and we 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 have to be listened to. And like, well, if you're if you're, if you're if you're as strong as the mead ladies, I think the minister better take heed. Uh, have you been refused a meeting with the minister? No, no, we haven't been refused. We just haven't received notice of being given uh, a meeting. Okay, so I'll be I'll, and. I'll be pursuing that throughout the month of August. I know it's holiday month, but I'm available any time to meet Minister Donnelly, as are my colleagues on, on Mead County Council. And we'll keep pushing for what we feel the people of Mead need. And I understand the concerns that you've outlined this morning, that mm. the doubt that might be in some people's mind. But I still would go to Navin Hospital. And if they then make a decision that I have to be moved somewhere else, so be it. But let's support what Navin is doing. And people are going there day in and day out and they're being well looked after. Let's not forget that. Okay. What do you think is going to happen um, in September when this working group reports? Any idea? Um, I mean, I, I think I, it'll be a, a hodgepodge of a decision. That's what it would be, which would probably satisfy nobody. Mm. It's very hard to know, isn't it? Like, we don't know what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> we, I mean, we don't know who's why, doing why, it. Yeah, and, and who's doing Who's pulling the strings here? Yeah. Is it the minister? I don't think it's Paul Reid. And I think the Secretary General is the man who's pulling the strings of everybody, including the minister yeah. at this particular point in time. Well, if there's people so, in Meath who'd like to know what's happening with their local hospital, I think they can safely assume... To know. Well, it's none of their business, I think, seems to be the attitude. Well... You know, it's as, as I think it was Dr. Rory Handley uh, some years ago um, when it was announced first about the closure of Navin Hospital said that uh, he was tri- sick and tired listening to South Dublin uh, Medical Ivory Tower people. So, you know, the people of South Dublin or in Dublin 4 want to make decisions for County Meath. Uh, that's not acceptable. Right. Not acceptable to the people of Meath and they better start listening up in the Ivory Towers in Dublin. Okay, Nick, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Nick Killian, Kohirlik of Meath County Council and an independent councillor. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Very interesting interview with Ursula von der Leyen in uh, the Irish Examiner today, uh, the President of uh, the European Commission, uh, talking about how this country could become a renewable superpower by using offshore wind. Uh, it's a potential solution to what seems to be a huge problem after the uh, deal that has uh, been struck between the government departments on uh, the carbon emissions ceilings uh, because uh, by law uh, the emissions have to be cut by 51% by 2030 but as things stand the target is to reduce them by 43%. So something will have to happen over the course of uh, the next eight years. Let's speak to Pauline O'Reilly, Green Party Senator, Chair of her party and a member of the Oireachtas Environment and Climate Committee. And a very good morning to you Senator O'Reilly and thanks for joining us once again on the programme this morning. Uh, Will it be possible to get to 51%? Well, it's 51%, remember, it's 51% by 2030 and then it's net zero by mm. 2050. Um, it's a huge challenge, but it's one that we're up for. And um, I, I think that in general, people in Ireland uh, feel that climate is very important. Certainly our young people do. But when I go to the doors, I hear from an awful lot of older people who are saying that 
uh, their young grandchildren are the ones who are really propelling them into seeing the world in a different way. Um, But we just have to do it. uh, And that's the beginning and end of it because uh, we've seen fires raging in the UK. We've seen um, flooding in Donegal the week Mm. before last. Tens of thousands of people evacuated across Europe over the last uh, few weeks, Mm. in fact. So, you know, this is, it's not only knocking on our door, it's knocked on Mm. our door and it's come in um, and it's going to change life anyway. So we may as well take the opportunity now to do it in a way that is managed um, and in a way, in, indeed as Ursula, Ursula von der Leyen has said in a way that actually can um, bolster our economy can create new opportunities job opportunities and also make sure that we're sustainable that we're getting our energy from Ireland instead of heavily relying on a global market that has let us down um it can continue like that anyway. So okay, all people, around... People are concerned about uh, the cost of this uh, part. <laughs> there's obviously the environmental cost, but uh, on the other side, there's the cost uh, that people will feel in their pockets by trying to live life differently, whether that's uh, in how we use transport or in farming, uh, which obviously has uh, been uh, the big area of uh, contention. Uh, but if we're at 43% now and we have to get to 51% in eight years, surely there's going to be an even higher cost in the years ahead. Well, it's more a case that the 40, 43% is is, uh, is what, what we've looked at over the last uh, number of months and indeed year. Um, and that's where we're saying that's the amount of reduction we can see that can be achieved. But it still hasn't been achieved. I mean, to be, to be really clear about it, that includes a 25% reduction in agricultural emissions. Um, but what we've what we've seen is that uh, farming isn't paying at the moment. Um, we need a new form and a more sustainable form of agriculture that's giving consumers what they want. But we need to make sure that farmers' incomes are replaced. And that's exactly what we're doing. So, um, for instance, there'll be new opportunities for farmers when it comes to anaerobic mm. digestion, which is, uh, for, for those who don't know what anaerobic mm. digestion, and I think we're all new to all of these terms, yeah, yeah. is basically, you know, using uh, food waste, using grassland and, um, and slurry, mm. and using it instead to create energy. Producing um, energy from it, yeah. Producing mm-hmm. energy mm-hmm. From, our, from our land. So, actually, we've estimated that 15% of gas could actually come from anaerobic digestion if we get this right. And it would also ensure that farmers have an income. Mm. Um, and then their you know, income from solar panels on farms, that's, uh, that's going to be coming down the track. But also diversifying, because what we've seen is that the quality of our rivers and our biodiversity is going is, is sharply down. I mean, in your mm-hmm. own county in the Boyne, we can see that river quality has been um, has been a cause of concern in the southeast of the country as well, where you've run off from um, high fertilizer using using farms. Mm. All of these things will have to change, but they should be able to change in a way that means that farmers are paid for a different type of agriculture. Mm. But you know, did your party I leader bottle it? Uh, in, in terms of well, no, of agriculture, the, uh, yeah. the the amount of the amount that we were looking for, um, or certainly the the Climate Change Advisory Council was suggesting, was a reduction between twenty two and thirty percent, and what was agreed upon was twenty five percent, but with significant add ons. Yeah, but you 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 had said you, you'd 
have to uh, meet with uh, other members of uh, the Green Party and look at your role in government if it was anything less than 30%? No, I had said if it was 22 or 23%. So to be very clear about that, um, I think that we have to be pragmatic and we have to realise that it is a big job for farmers and we need to bring everybody with us. But it's 25% with add-ons so that the anaerobic digestion and the solar farms Okay. Um, they're, they're on top of that. But, but because it's 25%, them. will we have to close cement factories? Or will we have to take, uh, I don't know, 100,000, 200,000 cars off the road? Because it's because it's uh, 25% means that transport reduction is 50% reduction mm. uh, in emissions. Um, energy is 75%. Buildings is 45% and industry is 35%. Mm. So right across the board, it's a challenge. And if we look at transport, for instance, um, we are going to need to see significant investment. And the money is there. We've said the money is there. Mm. Uh, It's been given to councils in order to be able to change, to have more cycle lanes and more buses. Mm. And we've already we're rolling out now Connecting Ireland, which will connect more rural communities. Okay. Um, so, so there are more rural buses, but we will need to see, and I know that there are lots of campaign groups um, and, you know, in, in Drada, for instance, the cycling group there is doing great work, but it is about the councils making the change as well and councillors getting on board because actually it can make people's lives better when we create these uh, new opportunities mm. for people to live in a more sustainable way. And will it just be way. will it just be unaffordable to ha- have a petrol or diesel car? It's more that um, it, we're putting money we're putting money into other things. Yeah, but that you'll be asking people see, to cycle. Uh, we we already they, see. Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. You'll be asking people to cycle or, or take the bus, but um, their car will be very expensive. Uh, so there'll be a, a carrot and stick, will there not? There is no, there, you know, the, the amount of carbon tax is absolutely minuscule when it comes to uh, the amount that's on petrol and diesel. But the cost has shot up and that's because of our over-reliance on a global market for oil and gas. Mm. And that's, that's what the electricity price is as well. That's why we have to shift to u- renewables and fast. That means offshore wind and um, again, off the East Coast, there'll be a lot of opportunities. Um, and also it means uh, solar. And we've opened the first um, large scale solar farm in Wicklow um, just last month. But when it comes to um, when, it, when it comes to things like cycling and walking, they mm. actually have the added benefit of being healthier. But it's not for everybody. So there does have to be a variety. And that's why, you know, it isn't it isn't getting to net zero tomorrow. Mm. But make no mistake about it, it, it is a huge shift in the way that we do things. Mm. But, but, uh, but, but, but it really will uh, require, I mean, if it's to be successful, you either have people walking or cycling uh, or buying an uh, electric car. Uh, and to cut out petrol and diesel cars, you're going to have to price them off the road, aren't you? Well, that's not that, that's not what the plan is. The plan is to incentivise things, and um, and we've already uh, reduced things like excise and VAT. Um, and so you know those things to try and deal with the energy crisis, which isn't of our own making, is being mm. you know every single country is being hit with that. But it is creating opportunities for trains, mm. for buses as well. And um, we've reduced by twenty percent the amount of fares on public buses, yeah. 50% for young people. And 
as a result of that, and that's an incentive rather than a disincentive on something else, as a result of that, there has been a sharp rise in people taking public transport Mm. to the extent that we're getting 41 new train carriages in the middle of next year to try and... To yeah, but 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 can we do that. enough in any of these sectors uh, to reach uh, this target of forty three or fifty one percent by twenty thirty in the next eight years? I mean, when you talk about seventy five percent reduction in electricity, what does that mean in effect? Because I can't imagine that you'll have sufficient power coming from offshore wind by then, and I have no doubt that that really is fantastic uh, to talk about new solar farms uh, and so on, but. Uh, We're going to need to power our homes and businesses uh, the way we have traditionally, uh, which is using gas, isn't it, uh, to a a large extent. Uh, And if we're to reduce emissions by 75%, how do you do that without making electricity more expensive? Well, the 75% is coming from um, actual projections of how much offshore wind we can get. I mean, that's a projection of uh, well, what we were saying was five gigawatts. Now, with the with the um, with the with the agriculture, we're saying seven kilo, um, gigawatts of offshore renewable wind. There's actually capacity for about 80 gigawatts. So, you know, once we get past this kind of this kind of stage, we could actually export a lot of energy because we have a natural resource that a lot of other countries don't have, and that's, uh, you know, our wind. Mm. But but it is going to be a challenge to ramp up that fast. But the industry is definitely up for it. It's not entirely, you know, it's it's not coming all from the public purse. This is coming from uh, companies as well. But but Ireland's putting in the regulatory framework to make sure that it's done in a way that's sustainable. Um, but it means that we are not then reliant on importation of gas and oil. Um, and we can see only on Saturday, Putin cut off gas to Latvia. Um, and that, this is happening to country after country. So we're, we're on a market with people. We might not be getting our oil and gas directly from Russia, but because 40% of Europe is, it's increasing the prices across, um, across the world. And that's having a knock-on impact on Ireland. So when we talk about sustainable, it isn't sustainable to continue the way things are going. And then to be, you know, um, really looking to places like Russia and going with a, with a begging bowl. We can't continue like that. So we are being ambitious because we think it's the right thing to do for Ireland. And um, we also need to ensure that we have a more sustainable food um path in Ireland so that we have more diversity in terms of the types of food that we're growing in Ireland, have more tillage, which means producing more of our own grain instead of um, being obliged to get it from places like Ukraine, which is what's been happening, um, and and having three crises in in terms of fodder. So, um, you know, I think that this is the right path. I think that what it really takes is for us all to, to work together to achieve it. Okay, time will tell, obviously, uh, and we don't have much time, which is uh, the unfortunate and worrying aspect of all of this. Uh, but we leave it there for the moment. And many thanks, as always, for joining us Thank on the programme. That's a Green Party Senator, Pauline O'Reilly, who's uh, the chair of the Green Party and a member of the Oireachtas Environment and Climate Committee. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, the President's wife, uh, Sabina Higgins, uh, wrote uh, to the Irish Times last week saying that the war in Ukraine would continue until both Ukraine 
and Russia agreed a ceasefire and entered negotiations. That letter was also published on uh, the website of Oris on Ukraine, but it has since been removed. There has been some pressure put on the President, Michael D. Higgins, uh, to clarify his position in relation to the letter that was penned by his wife. Uh, and we're joined now by Fine Gael Senator John McGann, who has many questions about all of this. And a very good morning to you, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're not uh, happy with how the President has responded to this so far. Uh, hi, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I suppose let's just dive into it with the President's statement yesterday. Uh, the, the reason why I'm just not happy with that statement yesterday from the Irish is that the letter doesn't answer anything. Um, I think there's still very basic questions as to why what has now become a very controversial letter was published on the president.ie's website. Um, I think the statement is bland. I think it's generic. I think he says what we all agree on. He says what any decent person would, that he fully supports Ukraine. No one, no one is questioning that. What people are questioning is why was it added as an official statement to the president's official website. So we're now five days into this controversy, and I don't believe that ignoring genuine questions from the media or politicians or wider society is going to make the story go away. So what I would call on our uh, bits of clarity that I would be looking for is basic, it's pretty simple. Did the president assist in the drafting of the letter? Did he ask for the letter to be published to the website? Did he subsequently ask for that letter to be deleted from the website? I think the statement he made yesterday fails to, subdre- fails to address some of those substantial questions. And I think that's why this will keep rumbling on, on until he does address those questions. Okay. Uh, is this uh, appropriate to call the president uh, into question uh, in such a, a public fashion? Uh, on this case, I think it is. Like, I have the utmost respect for President Higgins and Sabina Higgins. Uh, both of them have had incredible careers and uh, made a real contribution to Irish society over the last 40 years. But the reason why the president has been brought into this situation in the first place is because it was posted to president.ie. Um, in relation to Sabina Higgins, totally allowed to have whatever view she wishes. No issue with that. She's no official role in the Constitution. She is a private citizen. I agree with all of that. But the difference here is she is married to the president. She does live in Arsenal, Tehran. Her views on the Russian Ukraine, uh, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I believe are open to critique. I believe they're open to be challenged. And the other thing about it is what I would say is how many private citizens have their views published to the president.e website? So the mm. reason the president is now involved in this controversy is, is, is surely for that website. And I think if the clarity is brought to those couple of questions about why it appeared there, I, I think this whole issue would be would be finished by now. OK, and do you believe uh, that Sabina Higgins shouldn't have written this letter? She shouldn't have uh, made a, a statement? Is that your belief on an international situation like this? Um, no, I think she's every right to make any statement she wishes, but I think she has to be prepared to be challenged on that issue or be challenged on that statement. I heard a really good um, I heard a really good interview yesterday from a former First Lady of Ukraine who said that it, when she had been uh, First Lady of Ukraine, she would never have dreamt of writing a letter to an Irish newspaper about the situation in Northern Ireland in the 90s or the early 2000s. So I think that's a, a good angle coming from a former First Lady of Ukraine. But she's absolutely entitled to have any views she wishes. Mm. She's more than happy to write to uh, any newspaper she wishes. I've no, I've no issue with that. What I have an issue is that that letter being used as an official statement okay. uh, on the present okay. website. But, but, but you'd be happy for Sabina Higgins to debate her, her views if they are being contested? Yeah, absolutely. Because okay. like, mm. my whole view mm. of politics, Michael, is that like you may have an opposing view, I may have an opposing view, and the only way we can tease it out and see who's perhaps correct or who's quite wrong is for opposing views to be... That, that's you and I, but neither of us are the president's <laughs> wife, yeah. That's true.
Yeah. Okay, but uh, you're happy enough w- with that. Uh, uh, do you believe or do you suspect uh, that uh, the president, Michael D. Higgins, uh, played some role in drafting the letter? Well, you see, this this is what would, like like I said to you earlier, we're now into day five of this controversy. And what would end this pretty quickly is just some answers to those basic questions. Did he have a hand in drafting the letter? Did he make any points of the letter? Did he did he suggest the letter should be written in the first place? I'm not for a moment saying that Sabina Higgins is just a, a vehicle for her husband to express views. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But if the president did have a hand in writing a letter like that, that would be a real fundamental issue because it goes against Article 29.4 of the Constitution, which means that the president will have no real views whatsoever on foreign affairs and the foreign affairs are at the uh, at the behest of the government of the country. So that's what I'd be looking at that. But the, just to go back to the letter, and I do think we're moving on from the letter now because it's not really about the letter anymore. It's, it's about it being on president.ie and being officially endorsed and refusal to follow up with it. But mm. there's just three very brief issues about the letter itself. Firstly, it portrays the war as if it's two countries squabbling over a contested piece of territory. It, it provides a moral equivalency between Russia uh, and uh, Ukraine, and I think that's one question the president should be asked. The second thing is the UCC professor that's referenced in the same article. He has uh, publicly said on, in the Irish media that he believes Ukraine should just hand over land to Russia. I think the, que- the I think the question should be asked does the president agree with that. And the third thing, and I think this is the real big issue about it, like this letter was endorsed by the Russian ambassador. Like, what more do you need to know? This letter has actually now been trumpeted by Russian state media over the weekend as saying, look, that Ireland agree with our cause and. The Irish people are a greater cause. That is there in Russian media. It's now been used as a propaganda tool to, uh, you know, really support Russian apologists. And I don't think Sabina Higgins or President Higgins wanted anything like that to happen. But unfortunately, it has. And that's why I think clarity on the situation really needs to be brought in. A very quick way just to resolve this is for the president to simply say it should not have been published. It was an error. I fully acknowledge that. And I apologize for it. That would end this whole thing. You know mm. what I mean? And I just think it's important that the president comes out and, and makes some sort of views known about it. Okay. Is it possible uh, that the president could make a, a statement in response to this that would make matters worse? Uh, is it possible that if the president had a role uh, in drafting this letter uh, and in publishing this letter, uh, and in formulating the thoughts around this letter, that uh, the president's position wouldn't be tenable. Oh, I don't think anyone's calling into. I, 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 like that's a good question. I, I suppose on one level, I don't think anyone's calling into the position of the president's the position being tenable. I, I wouldn't be going that far whatsoever. But what I would say is, the president has, or Miss Higgins has, opened up Pandora's box of queries here. Um, and I think those queries should be answered. And if some of the questions are answered in a way that you've suggested yourself, well, that really moves this controversy onto onto another stage. But I think what's important now for you know someone like myself or, or other people is to simply react to what the president is saying. No one is on a witch hunt here. No one is looking for resignations or anything silly like that. What people are looking for is answers to very basic questions. And at the end of the day, totally entitled to whatever view you wish. I have no issue with that. Okay. But under no circumstances should it be published as an official statement on the President's website. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for I joining us uh, this morning. Fine Gael Senator John McGahan. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now there's a photo of Keen Mulready Woods on the front page of uh, the Star today, uh, and a story from Nicola Donnelly, which tells us uh, that a wanted Drogheda feud gang member has boasted on social media that he's living it up in 31 degrees Celsius heat 
in Mexico. Uh, apparently he's one of a number of thugs uh, who are said to, to be in Cancun in Mexico but this fellow has been putting photographs of himself sunbathing and having a, a drink and so on uh, on social media. The star has seen these photos uh, and as I say that story is in the paper today. Let's talk uh, about how this is uh, being received locally. Sinn Féin councillor Joanna Byrne is on the line. Now, very good morning to you Joanna and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, Apparently, we're talking about three or, or four individuals who were all wanted by the Gardaí uh, who left uh, the town in recent times. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Yeah, look, you know, we see articles like this um, in the papers more and more frequently as time goes on. I don't think it's unique um, to the gangs linked to the feuding in Drogheda over the years. This seems to be normal behaviour when gangland criminals come under pressure by the hands of the law and the state. They pack up, they run, and unfortunately they have the vast resources and the knowledge to be able to manoeuvre these transitions. Mm. But, you know, when you look at these so, so-called crime bosses or whatever t- title they want to put in themselves, they think they're untouchable. Um, and in my view, you know, gloating like this and, and living it up as they are, it's, it's just another weapon to beat many victims of the feud that are in this town. There's not a family in, in I'd say there's a family in every estate in this, this town who's had their lives torn apart um, in one way or another over recent years. And, and to see those who are deemed responsible for that um, seemingly getting off scot-free and without a care in the world, you know, yeah. it is, it's rubbing salt in the wounds, in my view. Yeah, and I suppose it also talks about uh, the amount of money uh, that can be made in the drugs trade uh, because I don't know if uh, they've any income at the moment, but they certainly made enough money from selling their drugs and heading up um, their clans, um, as the case may be, to be living uh, comfortably in Cancun in Mexico. It's a, a long way away, but as you say, these photographs will be upsetting. Uh, I know that you spent some time with uh, the family of Keane Mulready-Woods. It must be dreadful for uh, that family or anybody uh, who knew Keane uh, to be looking at those photographs. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's horrific. You know, Keane's family, so many years later, are still seeing his picture pop up in front pages of newspapers and, and they haven't had the time and, and the peace and the serenity to grieve, I don't think. And I, that's probably normal in such a high-profile murder and whatnot, you know. But it's very hard on anybody looking at a picture of their son or their brother or their friend, um, you know, coming back up and it's reopening wounds time and time again. And it will be, that, w- that will be expected until, um, you know, justice is brought and stuff. Mm. But like you're talking about resources, like these organised criminal gangs, are they've wreaked havoc, and I mean havoc, on this town and many communities nationwide. But it shows um, how organised that they are, that they're able to manoeuvre themselves first of all out of this country, second of all out of another country, third of all out of a third country to get to where they are and Mm. still be able to live the high quality of life that they've become accustomed to at the hands of many youngsters in this town who are intimidated, who are brought into crime circles that they they never would have known of before. They were used as mules, lives ruined, you know, it's Mm. deplorable, carry on. Yeah, because they were in Spain uh, and then said to have been in Turkey uh, and now in Mexico, um, I suppose they've been discovered to some degree uh, because uh, they were foolish enough to put photographs on social media, which Look, are now published I, I, I in the paper. I don't doubt for any mm. second that Angarda Shikana mm. and Cab and um, all of them entities already knew where these 
people are. You know, I do believe that they're, they're well aware of where they are and it's just a matter of time um, until they slip up and, and, and they can be returned mm. um, to Ireland to face justice for the crimes that they committed. But I think CAB is really playing a huge part in this and is very important. We've seen it in recent months with massive seizures in different countries, um, you know, with the Kimmingham cartel and stuff like that. So I don't believe for a second um, that these crime bosses are untouchable. I think it's just a matter of time um, before their day comes to haunt them, you know, that yeah, kind of way. Yeah. So I, I don't think they're doing themselves any favours, yeah. however, but I don't think, I think the hands of the law would probably already have known where they were and exactly what they're doing and it's they're just playing the time until that they, they can take them home and make them face mm-hmm. justice for their horrific crimes and, yeah. and all the, the, the hurt and upset that they caused to this town, you know? Yeah, well, the gangsters that we're talking about uh, aren't named in the paper, oh. but in Nicola Donnelly's report, she does say that uh, they'll be arrested as soon as uh, they step foot back in this I'm country Irish, again, if ever they do. Uh, but I suppose the upside of all of that is that They've left the neighbourhood and, they're, and you know, uh, they've taken their business with them, if you like. Uh, have they been replaced or...? or w- I, look, I think they may have left the neighbourhood and I think they've left a trail of devastation behind yeah. them and I think they've left a, tra- a network, um, you know, that, that may not have been as substantial as what it may have been um, over recent years, but I definitely think there's still roots planted um, I have to hand it to, you know, Angarda Shiakana in, in the town and in the county, you know, our past Chief Superintendent, Christy Mangan and Superintendent Waters. They're just phenomenal in the, the, the diligence and the resources that was channeled into this. And I, I think it's testament to them um, that a lot of these key players felt threatened enough to have to leave the town. Um, I don't think it's gone away. You know, you're, you're always going to have... Um, Little little branches growing of this, but mm. but I'm confident enough in in the garden that we have in the town that they're well aware of this, and I'm working hard every day to to keep this stamped out and not let it escalate mm. into the levels mm. that it was before. Well, I mean, there's no doubt that every town in Ireland yeah. has drugs, gangs, and so there's plenty of drugs. I'm sure in Drogheda, but do you think that the feud is over at this stage? I think it's settled um, to a huge extent. Um, I think there's still a lot of unresolved um, issues. There's a lot of cases before the courts. There's a lot of people upcoming before the courts. Um, and I think once they start coming into fruition and sentences are handed out, I think that will, will send a, a severe message to any youngsters um, that may be dabbling in this and maybe being roped into this and and, and these people are very clever and they take advantage of kids and they're taking advantage of teenagers right across the town, you know. But I think um, there's been a significant amount of arrests and there's been a significant amount of seizures. And I think once we start seeing them coming through the courts um, and the court system is clamping down on this, I think it'll go a long way to eliminate um, anything like that ever happening in our town again. OK, well, that's positive. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, Joanna. And thank you Thanks, indeed you. Uh, for joining us on the programme today. Joanna Byrne is a shin- Fane councillor on Louth County Council and of course based in Drogheda. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments that have been coming to us uh, today and thanks to Elaine Elliott who has WhatsApped us uh, this morning and tells us that she had a procedure done recently in uh, the endoscopy unit in Navin Hospital. The nurses, the doctors and all of the staff couldn't have been more efficient or more pleasant uh, and I'm sure they'll appreciate that message coming to the radio station. Uh, I think uh, it's 
the report that you'll get from most people who spend any time in hospital and uh, there's great care uh, and attention given by the staff in all of the hospitals. Thank you for that. Uh, another uh, text that was from somebody who says every dog in the street knew where these fellas had been for over a, a year. Now the question uh, that has to be asked is how were they able to get away from guard the surveillance? Uh, that's uh, the Drogheda gangsters who f- fled the country. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, Maul has been in touch saying, I can't understand the big fuss about Sabina Higgins' letter. She only said what we're all saying, listening to Senator John McGahan on uh, the radio this morning talking about it. I wonder, has he no life? I, I don't think that the poor people of Ukraine are too concerned uh, about a letter. They have real worries. Now, I doubt Putin is too bothered about it either, says Maul. Uh, James texting us uh, about that as well. He says, I don't hear the Ukrainian ambassador giving out about the American foreign minister and the Russian foreign uh, ministers meeting uh, the other day to try and negotiate a, a ceasefire. Uh, we're all entitled to our opinion and the president's wife would be considered our first lady. We're known as a, a nation of negotiators and peacekeepers. The problem is that with Ukraine, if the story doesn't suit their narrative, you're scolded and almost treated as a racist, says James. Um, thanks uh, for sharing that uh, with us, James. Uh, John and Navin uh, has equally strong feelings about this. Uh, stronger, quite possibly, he says. Uh, the hurtful and uncalled for uh, letter, uh, according to the Ukrainian ambassador, uh, calling for a pe- uh, Sabina Higgins calling for a peace settlement between uh, Russia and Ukraine to end the bloodshed. Uh, John says that's a, a typical response from a Ukrainian. It's disgusting to see uh, a photo of Zelensky on Vogue magazine being treated like some sort of famous rock star. Then uh, you have what John says are sta- is staged footage of him posing uh, on the front line in battle dress, trying to appear to be heroic. Uh, he's stuck in a bunker out of danger like Hitler was in 1945, still screaming for victory. We're being fed a load of crap by the media who take Zelensky's rambling broadcasts as gospel without checking uh, if they're true or not. Thanks uh, for that, uh, John. Uh, I'm sure there's a, a lot of propaganda um, uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, the media uh, tries to be very careful to report uh, on stories in a way that is accurate. Uh, somebody in touch with us about electric cars saying because there's a, a lot of people who are, are buying EVs, the government want to cut the grant when you actually buy an electric car. Uh, well, thanks uh, for sharing that. And thanks to Deirdre and Kells, who says they need to upgrade Our Ladies Hospital in Navan. It needs to be kept open only for the hospital in Navan. I wouldn't be here. They saved my life uh, and other hospitals can't cope. Well, thank you, too, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, e-scooters are a scourge on small rural roads and councillors, a couple of councillors at least in Limerick, are saying that these e-scooters pose a threat to the public. Uh, The Daily Mail is reporting on how two councillors in Limerick, uh, Gerald Mitchell and Michael Donegan, are are saying that there's a, a lack of noise coming from them and they pose a threat to the public. They're quite silent and sometimes people use them on footpaths as well and that legislation should be brought in because they're a danger to 
the public and not just on the footpaths but also on the roads. Uh, these uh, e-scooters uh, quite often do up to 25 kilometres an hour. Well, legislation is uh, to be introduced uh, and it's something that's been looked at uh, quite extensively by the Oireachtas Transport Committee. Independent Senator Jared Crockwell is a, a member of that committee and he, he joins us along with June Tinsley, who's Head of Communications and Advocacy with the National Council of uh, the Blind in Ireland uh, and has made submissions uh, on behalf of the Irish Wheelchair Association, the um, NCBI and the Irish Guide Dogs uh, Association as well in respect of what they want uh, with e-scooters. And a very good morning to both of you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, June, the Road Safety Authority has made its own proposals on this and I think to a, a large degree they would fall into uh, line with your view on this. They're saying that there should be a minimum age, uh, that you shouldn't use an e-scooter unless you're 16 years of age or older, that the speed should be limited to 20 kilometres an hour, only permitted for use on roads, uh, and that's roads that have a speed limit of 50k or less. Uh, they shouldn't be permitted on footpaths and that you should, uh, by law, have to wear a helmet if uh, you're on an e-scooter. Uh, as I say, I think you'd agree with a, a lot of what the Road Safety Authority is saying. Uh, very much so and morning Michael um, yes I mean to be fair NCBI and as you said we collaborated with the Irish Wheelchair Association and the Irish Guide Dogs just to kind of um, set parameters that we feel should be included in the legislation or the, the regulations that will flow from it um, and it's kind of minimum standards we believe will ensure safety of, of riders and very importantly the safety of vulnerable pedestrians uh, particularly people who are blind or and vision impaired and the Road Safety Authority, as you outlined, um, clearly is in line with many of the things we're suggesting, such as a ban on footpaths, um, designated parking zones, and minimum age limit of, of 16, mm. um, and, and helmets being mandatory. The other thing we certainly would like included, um, and you mentioned it at the be- beginning there, is around an audio signal being attached to mm. e-scooters, to their design, because certainly um, if you're a person who's blind or vision impaired, you obviously can't see them coming um, and they're nearly upon you before you realise uh, and it has led yeah. to I don't think you need accident. to be blind or visually impaired it's probably yeah, all the worse yeah. Yeah, yeah, because they are so silent and, and they're on top of you uh, I think a lot of the riders don't like it when you don't get out of the way as well Yeah I mean I suppose it, we're at the stage unfortunately where the legislation is just taking so long to get through um, the Oireachtas that, uh, and the use of e-scooters is so widespread and there are benefits to e-scooters definitely but I suppose we need to now put in kind of basic rules and regulations to influence rider behaviour and, and raise standards so that it's, it's a useful mode of transport but it's also not going to compromise the safety of any other either, either pedestrian or, or road user. Okay, Jared Crockwell um, what kind of regulations do you think should be brought in under the legislation? Well, I think everything you mentioned at the top of the programme is what needs to be brought in. But I have some serious concerns with respect to where we are now. And it's not just in Ireland, it's right across Europe now. Um, How do you get the toothpaste back into the tube? That's what I want to know. Because around where I live, in in urban Dublin, uh, we have young children with these scooters. Remember, some of these scooters are capable of speeds up to 121 kilometres an hour. That's Mm. unbelievable, I believe, most will think. But that's what they have. I passed a woman yesterday with two, two toddlers on the scooter with her. 
we have two or three people uh, around the Sandyford area that travel on uniwheels. There, there is, it's just a wheel. They stand on the wheel and they travel on it. And I believe that it is going to be extremely difficult. And indeed, the point you make about travelling on footpaths, the danger to people who are visually impaired, the danger to people who are pushing buggies, the danger to people who are uh, walking with young children or elderly people. Uh, and we we have no law, um, and we've had the Gardaí in to speak to us on this. Mm. We have no law at the moment. We need the legislation. And unfortunately, the legislation is taken forever to get through the houses of the Oireachtas because it's been mixed in with other uh, legislation. I think we should have legislated straight for it uh, and, and let whatever else needs to be done, okay. be done uh, at a different pace. Do, do you mean that um, the type of behaviour that people complain about uh, is not uh, illegal? It's not illegal to ride on the footpath or to ride one of these things uh, in the wrong direction on a one-way street? Now, I think it would be wrong to ride in the wrong direction, but I think the Gardaí have pointed out to us that they feel somewhat um, uh, constrained in what they can do because there is no clear regulation. So clearly, they, I know when I was speaking to the Gardaí at the committee recently, they said if they saw somebody on a uni wheel, uh, that that is fundamentally illegal because you cannot have control of it. Um, but the scooter issue is slightly different insofar as on the footpath, there doesn't seem to be a problem. There is no law banning it. On the road, there doesn't seem to be a problem. There's no law banning it. But uh, imagine one of these things hitting your car at 20 kilometres an hour. They have no insurance. They have no tax. The damage to the car, the damage to the individual driving the scooter, mm. all of these things need to be taken into account. And I believe we're dithering so long right across Europe on this that it is going to be impossible to regulate it. Mm. There's no regulations anywhere, is there? No, none that I'm aware of. Okay. And uh, it has grown organically. I, I don't know, I was in Brussels recently and there's e-scooters on every corner. You can just get up on one and go. Uh, the same in Spain, uh, same in Italy. Uh, so bottom line on this is they have taken a life onto themselves and it's going to be extremely difficult to roll back. Also, I'm not sure what it's like up in the northeast, but certainly in Dublin, we have young children as young as 10 or 11 years of age flying around the place on these things. Mm, yeah, and it would appear dangerous as well. A lot of these children are, are driving very fast and, and don't have road sense. I mean, they haven't had a, a driving lesson, but uh, when you're driving at that speed, uh, you could do with uh, a little bit of uh, teaching and experience and all of that sort of uh, thing. Uh, June Tinsley... Um, do you think that, as Jared Crockwell said, it's too late uh, to put the toothpaste back into the bottle? Uh, well, I love the analogy, but um, I, I think to be fair, there are some lessons to be learned across Europe because they do have some some countries are, are uh, as you rightly says, further down the road from us on this uh, agenda and have had to row back. Um, I mean, most countries do have minimum ages, either ages between 14 and 16 is, is a minimum age in law. Um, uh, and certainly in, in France, they had to row back in terms of the speed limits that applied. So I think there are um, lessons because uh, they did have a free-for-all free and now they're kind of taking stock because it's led to injuries, not only for the riders, but also for the pedestrians um, and road users. And I do think it was a um, when the committee met recently, they said that most of the stuff will be um, covered in regulations as opposed to in the actual law itself. 
but they did choose to delete the clause making it an offence to sell to under 16 year olds um, and that that was now had to be reviewed and the real challenge with that and the, the senator is right because um, it's totally unforceable if you're a policeman and you, there's no requirement for licence or insurance or ID cards or anything then you can't be putting in an offence if it's, it's if it's unenforceable. Uh, so I think we're at the stage now where uh, the legislation needs to be very, very explicit mm. so that those who are enforcing it can do so with the full confidence of the law behind them. Mm. And do you want to see the guards police this, Jared Crockwell? Uh, in other words, do you want to see them confiscate e-scooters if they break uh, the legislation or the regulations? Yeah, uh, absolutely, Michael. I think the only way we're going to get uh, the the toothpaste back into the tube, for the want of an analogy, is if we bring in extremely, uh, 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 what you call it, laws, whereby the Gardaí can confiscate uh, a scooter if it's been ridden by an underage person, uh, can confiscate one if it's been ridden on the footpath, uh, I mean, they're a simple little uh, item, and it's simply just a question to take them off them and uh, let them come to the Garda station to collect them and pay the respective fine, whatever it will be. Mm. But, uh, I mean, there is a huge danger to members of the public uh, because um, these things, the size of the wheel, for example, if you sm- hit a very small pothole at, at uh, speed, likelihood you're going to be sent out over the over the handlebars. Hmm. I agree that there are modes of transport that we should probably look at, but we're allowing it to get out of control. We should be pulling it back right now. Legislation in this country takes forever. Mm-hmm. And too too many too many vested interests have an input into it. I know the Gardaí want uh, controls. I know the Road Safety Authority want controls. And we really need to get our act together mm-hmm. in, in Leinster House and get the legislation. And I, I think uh, there's more to it than people just being uh, upset by these things. I think people are also concerned uh, for the riders uh, because they can see the danger in it. And I, I thought that a proposal from the Road Safety Authority uh, about uh, where you could ride these that would be on a, a road with a speed limit of less than 50 kilometres was very interesting because I, I did see one out on the main road uh, where the speed limit was 80. Uh, and I really thought... I, I wasn't sure, to be honest. I thought, is it different than a, a bicycle? Or, you know, is it safe uh, if the rider is, is proficient enough to use one of these things and feels safe uh, out on an open road like that? Is it safe? But I certainly wouldn't fancy doing it myself or uh, somebody I know being out on a, a main road like that. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I've taken a challenge to cycle around Dublin and cycling in any city is dangerous. These things are even more dangerous because you're unstable all the time on them. So um, I, I, I think we need to get our act together and get the legislation in place quickly. OK, were you surprised, uh, June Tensley, to see uh, the recommendations from the Road Safety Authority? No, not in the slightest, because we were working with that earlier in, in the year, um, and I wholeheartedly agree with what they're um, highlighting. Um, and I do feel that um, it, it, uh, it's negligent on everybody's behalf if we allow um, an e-scooter out on a road with 80 kilometre speed limit and not have a helmet being mandatory. Um, so I, I just think that's absolutely bonkers. Um, I, I personally feel that e-scooters, the um, NCBI and, and the others certainly were calling for a lower speed limit. So if that was to be attained at around 12 or 15 kilometres per hour, 
permission on an 80 kilometre zone it, it seems a bit reckless to me um, but certainly I would wholeheartedly endorse the helmets being mandatory certainly the only study in Ireland around e-scooter in- injuries certainly alludes to the fact that riders have um, acquired uh, brain and head injuries as a result of uh, e- accidents they've had on their e-scooter Okay. So man- helmets mm. should be mandatory. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I can't imagine how anybody would have the nerve to get on them without a helmet. Uh, in some cases, I'm not sure how they have the nerve to get on them in the first place. Uh, but mm. we'll, we'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us, both of you, uh, on uh, the programme this morning. June Tinsley is Head of Communications and Advocacy with uh, the National Council for the Blind in Ireland, NCBI. And we were also speaking there to Independent Senator Jared Crockwell. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Independent uh, reported uh, this week that there was 153 recorded incidents of insurance claim fraud. That was in 2019. That number fell to 120 in 2020 and just 84 last year. That's the recorded incidents of fraud. uh, But why uh, is insurance so expensive? Well, it's quite possibly because there's a lot more fraud that is not being contested. Why is that the case? Well, if it is the case, it's because it's just too expensive to challenge uh, these claims. And uh, the uh, Alliance for Insurance Reform is saying that the insurance companies would prefer to settle with those who are making these dodgy claims and then pass on that cost to the rest of us, rather than spending money on rooting out fraud and reducing uh, their profits. Let's speak to Peter Boland, who's uh, the director of uh, the Alliance for Insurance, beg pardon, Insurance Reform. Good morning to you, Peter, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, there really has been a, a drop-off in, in the number of cases that have proven fraudulent. Absolutely, Michael. And you've got to remember that consistently over the years, insurance fraud was used as an excuse for uh, stratospherically high insurance premiums. Uh, And the consistent line from the insurance industry over the years was that about 20% uh, of insurance claims were fraudulent or exaggerated, which is fraudulent in its own right. Now, essentially, the insurance industry's bluff is being called by Angarda Siakana because they set up IFCO, the Insurance Fraud Coordination Office, in 2019. And you've listed off the numbers there. So if you were to take what the insurance industry was saying was happening, Uh, and you were to say that 20% of personal injury claims could be fraudulent or exaggerated, that would mean that on average every year, 6,600 claims would be fraudulent. And yes, as you've already said, last year, uh, only 84 were reported. Now, we know... Uh, from the experience of our members that there's no way that there were only 84 fraudulent claims uh, leading uh, to, leading up to being reported in 2021. Mm. On the other hand, we've never really bought this 20% narrative either. Um, and to be honest, the insurance industry's obsession with fraud to the extent that they have a massive fraud conference every year in Dublin, uh, we've always seen it as something of a smokescreen uh, in order to justify the high premiums. But there are certainly more than 84 in the average year. Uh, and what we know from our own experience all along is that insurers would prefer to settle cases 
as cheaply as they possibly can yeah. uh, rather than pursue them through the courts which but, is an eye-wateringly exper- uh, expensive experience. Well, that's, that, that's uh, an interesting point uh, and does it not make the point that it's in our interest for them to settle because if they paid the legal fees uh, undoubtedly that would have to lead to higher premiums to cover those costs. Well, it's not in our interest to settle because essentially what they've done through this uh, policy is create a system where uh, you get a free go every time you lodge a, a fraudulent claim. So essentially, the worst that can happen is that your claim is rejected uh, because the insurers will not take it any further. Um, and and so essentially, the victim of this crime, which is the policyholder who gets hammered with the increased costs, uh, has no recourse because the insurers control the claim. They have legal responsibility mm. for it, uh, and they will refuse to do anything. Um, and so now that they have the opportunity to report this uh, so-called 20% uh, fraudulent level, yeah. uh, they're clearly not taking it because it's not it's not happening at that level. Uh, but they're under-reporting as well, um, which is just adding to the cost of insurance for you, me and all your listeners. Yeah, but if it's more expensive to take a case, to challenge the claim, uh, well then, that extra expense, more expensive than paying uh, the claim or paying to whoever is claiming, um, well then surely it would result in more expensive insurance, would it not? Okay, well let's tease that out. Yeah. Uh, the cost is the cost of reporting the claim. Okay, so um, they they don't have to go the whole way through courts in order to see this through. Mm. If a fraud has been committed, uh, the cost is in them putting together the report to go into uh, on Garda Siakana. Now, we have a memorandum of understanding with the Garda as well, um, which uh, allows claims to be, fraudulent claims to be reported. It is very complex. It is very detailed. um, But that's what they're there to do. And uh, you can see their lack of commitment to this in the fact that whilst one or two insurers are very serious about fraud and will have departments of up to 40 or 50 personnel uh, studying claims, uh, detecting fraud and reporting it on, some of the very large insurers in Ireland have departments with only three people in them. Mm. Uh, which is just not enough. Uh, essentially, what they're doing is pushing files from one side of the desk to the other, as far as we can see. Okay, but it well, is not well, sufficiently resourced uh, to pursue and report fraud. Okay, but what about uh, what's paid out uh, to the solicitors and barristers uh, and so on? If, for example, somebody makes a, a claim against an insurance company and the cost uh, of compensating them is 10000 let's say, just as an example, but the legal cost in fighting and challenging it and saying, we don't believe it happened to you, uh, is 15000 Is it not cheaper to pay out the 10000 than to, to give that money to the solicitors? Well, two things about that. First of all, um, as soon as a case leaves, leaves PIAB and goes into litigation, uh, the costs are incurred anyway, and the insurers are going to get the bill regardless of whether it goes to court or not. Um, now, there will be some additional fees for turning up a court on the day, um, but that's the extent of it. Um, and the second thing on that is that uh, it doesn't have to go all the way into court in order to be challenged as a fraudulent claim. Mm. Uh, so you don't have to win a court case 
in order to prove that a case is fraudulent. There are other ways of doing it. Um, and so the, the additional cost is essentially setting up a department internally uh, that can detect and report the claims, the fraudulent claims. And that's where the cost is. And that's what they're not prepared to do. Um, so okay. essentially they're being caught out by this data and that they have been uh, constantly saying that fraud is the issue. Um, but what's clear from this data and from their own data in terms of personnel committed uh, to fraud detection is that when it comes to it, uh, they're not prepared to put the money into it. What they'd prefer to do is settle and pass that cost on. And remember, that's the missing link there in that you know, there was this myth that went around for years that essentially it was a cost to the insurance company mm. in terms of dealing with it. It's not a cost to the insurance company. They take it and put a margin on it and pass it on. Uh, so the cost is ultimately to policyholders. OK, uh, and uh, are premiums at the right level? I see in that same article in the Irish Independent that motor premiums are down 26% since the tar- start of 2019 and there's been new judicial guidelines on what's uh, awarded to people who make claims uh, and that's uh, seen a, a reduction uh, of 15% uh, since they were implemented uh, on motor insurance. Uh, but then we see that the total uh, value of compensation paid out in claims by PIAB uh, has dropped by almost a quarter in the last year and 43% lower than was in 2019. Uh, so we're talking about 25% and 43% uh, lower in terms of what's being paid out uh, and premiums down by 26% and 15% uh, since those new guidelines. Uh, uh, do they balance uh, to a certain extent, they do. I'll boil it down for you. Yeah. On motor, we're going in the right direction. It's not happening fast enough. Uh, but certainly all the work that's been done on insurance reform is starting to pay dividends on motor. And for any of your listeners who have a renewal coming up, they would be entitled to expect at least a 10% reduction um, on top of any reductions that they may have got last year or the year before, because that's the way the market is going. Now, what's interesting about that market is that there's plenty of competition. Um, there's plenty of advertising being done by motor insurers at the moment looking for your business. Mm. Uh, the, that is in stark contrast to what's going on on the liability side. And we've spoken many times mm. about the impact of the cost of insurance on community centres, voluntary groups, charities, small businesses, and their insurance continues to go up, despite the fact that the same figures apply. So um, PIAB, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board, are reporting serious drops in the level of claims uh, under the liability insurance side of things and uh, a serious drop in the type of awards being handed out in such claims. But that has not been reflected in the insurance premiums. And the singular difference between motor and liability is that there's very little competition in the liability side of things. Uh, And certainly what we've seen so far is that if a second insurer comes in and offers a quote, suddenly the quotes collapse in price. Uh, And so competition uh, in this particular instance is the cure. Uh, And government have acknowledged that. They've had an insurance competition office established since December 2020, but we are not seeing any results from that office and we're not seeing extra capacity coming into the market. Mm. And to be honest with you, Michael, I would have struggled to sell 
the Irish insurance market to overseas underwriters over the last number of years because it was a basket case, as, as we've talked about on many an occasion. But it has improved dramatically. All the things that we've talked about uh, are having a serious impact on the numbers. And so it's up to government to get a move on, get out there um, and sell us as a destination for uh, global underwriters because unfortunately it is a global business nowadays that um, it's very hard to get a start-up involved in insurance. Um, but there are plenty of large companies out there that aren't underwriting in Ireland at the moment okay. and we need them in as quickly as possible. And is it... Uh, possible to get a, a quote because we've been hearing re, uh, in recent years uh, about liability insurance uh, that not only are the quotes unaffordable for many people but sometimes uh, you can't get a quote. Yeah and, and so what seems to be happening now is like we're confident that in general quotes will start coming down in the near future if the government keeps the momentum going on this. But insurers are now involved in a process called micro-sectoring, where essentially it used to be the many uh, paying for the misfortune of the few. Um, but those pots uh, of policyholders are getting smaller and smaller. So you're ending up with very small sec- sectors having to wash their face in terms of uh, insurance premiums. And it's just not feasible when you get down to the size of the sectors in a small market like Ireland. Mm. So it, it, it is probably going to be up to government to have a look at these micro sectors that just simply cannot get cover like you say hmm. uh, and working out a, a fix for them um, because without some form of state intervention uh, there are plenty of small sectors out there that are just no longer going to be able to get cover. Yeah and you won't have bouncy castles or playgrounds as the case may be uh, because uh, there's been uh, so many problems in trying to uh, get uh, insurance uh, with uh, some very basic things really uh, and uh, I'm sure that will continue to be a problem for some time. Peter, we leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed, uh, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme. Peter Boland, uh, Director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Kyle Waters of Enfield Station joins us for this week's report and thank you for doing that. We're going to start in Mead, in Cullen, in fact, and a handbag snatch, which... Uh, was somewhat uh, unusual, uh, I think, and very frightening for the woman involved in this. Yes, good morning, Michael, and to all your listeners. Um, this is an appeal for information regarding a robbery from a person on the 27th of July 2022 at Starna in Colin in County Meath. So this occurred on Wednesday evening, the 27th of July, at approximately 9.10pm. A female had returned to her home after a trip to RD and was sitting in her vehicle in her driveway when a male wearing a face mask and a baseball hat opened the passenger door and grabbed her handbag and made off with it after a struggle with the woman. It is believed he got into a nearby car and left the area in the direction of the N2. The woman was able to contact her husband, who later located the suspected vehicle, but it left the area at speed in the direction of Drogheda. The vehicle is described as a grey Volkswagen Golf and had the registration plates of the 08LH, but these are believed to be false. The Gardaí are appealing for anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area at this time or if any motorists 
that were travelling in the area at the time who might have dash cam footage are asked to please contact Navangarda station on 046 Okay, we have a burglary in Dundalk to report on next and this happened in the very early hours of Friday morning, sort of Thursday night going into Friday morning. Yes, this right, Michael. Uh, Guardian Dundalk are investigating a burglary that occurred in the Laurel Grove, the Green Acres area of Dundalk, in the early hours of Friday morning, the 29th of July, this between 2 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. It was reported that the house was entered overnight and a silver Volkswagen Golf registration FT11DSU was taken from outside this property. The vehicle was then involved in a road traffic collision at approximately 11.40 on the same morning and the driver of that vehicle fled the scene on foot at the Red Cow Roundabout in Dundalk. So, Gary, you're interested in speaking with anyone who may have witnessed anything in either areas of Dundalk at those times and who may have dash cam footage to please contact Dundalk Garda Station and Dundalk Garda Station is 042-9388-416. Okay, uh, we're going uh, to Stamullen next and uh, a burglary that occurred there last Tuesday morning. Yes, that's correct. Um, so Gary and Laytown are looking for the public's assistance with a burglary that occurred in the Beloy Stamullen area on Tuesday, the 26th of July, between 11am and 12.20pm. A house was broken into and ransacked and a quantity of cash and jewellery were reported stolen from the property. So we're interested again in speaking with anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area during these times or may be in a position to assist Gary with their investigations to contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01-801-0600. Okay, to Dramad on Friday afternoon uh, when a window was broken in a car and a purse stolen as a result. Yeah, so it's Gary and Dramad is looking for the public's assistance with a break into a 191LH Red Seat Arona that was parked in Ravendale Park, Dramad, on Friday the 29th of July 2022 between 12.15 and 2pm. The front passenger window was smashed and a woman's purse was taken from the front seat. So, Gary, appealing for anyone who may have been in the area at the time or may have witnessed anything suspicious, please contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 938 416. So, Gary would like to remind the public not to leave their valuables on display in their vehicles at any time. If you can, please take them with you. But if not, please secure them safely in an area well out of sight, such as the boot of your vehicle. Mm, absolutely. Uh, we've a trailer uh, that was uh, stolen in Batterstown sometime last week. Next. Yes, yeah, so Gary and Dunshockland are investigating the theft of a blue metal single axle trailer that occurred in my legging area of Batterstown between uh, Tuesday the 26th and Wednesday the 27th of July. The car trailer was parked at the rear of the owner's house and was subsequently stolen when the owner wasn't there. The, the owner's registration plate is zero, sorry, is 131 Meath was on the rear of the trailer and we are asking if anyone has any information or may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area, please contact Ashburn Garda Stations. The number of Ashburn is 018010600. So Gary would also like to advise the public please secure their trailers in a shed if possible or with a wheel or hitch lock, which makes it more difficult for potential customers to steal your property. Okay, very good. Uh, we're going to conclude uh, with uh, what was a, a very serious fire by all accounts. Uh, a house that was burnt to the ground, was it? Yeah, that's right. In um, 
Dunboyne, the Gardies are looking for the public's assistance with alleged criminal damage by fire, so arson incident that occurred at an abandoned residential property on the old Navin Road in Dunboyne in County Mead on Tuesday the 26th of July at approximately 7pm. So Gardy and the fire service attended the scene, but unfortunately the property was extensively damaged and was subsequently burnt to the ground. So Gardy are appealing for anyone who may have witnessed anything suspicious in the area or who has any information to please contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01 8010600. Thank you indeed, Garda Kyle Waters of Enfield Garda Station, and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, thanks uh, to Margaret WhatsApping uh, the programme today. She says, Michael, I was in Navin last Thursday. I was passing between Claremont Stadium and uh, local car sales. Uh, I observed a, a young man with a disability. He had one of those electric chairs. I, I take it it's a mobility scooter that he was on and he had to try and go around this big pothole, which was extremely dangerous as the pathway is so near the road. Uh, she says, shame on the council leaving the path in such a condition. I, I was nervous watching uh, what he had to endeavour and I, I checked my mirror to make sure that he got by safely uh, and thankfully that was the case I take it Margaret thanks uh, for bringing that to our attention uh, we'll mention that uh, to Meath County Council for you thanks to to Joey who was on the phone to us saying if it's known where some of uh, these gangsters in Drogheda that fled if it's known where they are why are the Gardaí Going, not going out uh, and bringing them home. Why are they being allowed to thumb their noses at the authorities? Sarah says she wish, wishes that she could share uh, Councillor Joanna Byrne's optimism that the feud has died down in Drogheda. Many of uh, those responsible for the carnage of recent years may have left the country, but unfortunately there are always others waiting in the shadows to take over where they left off. It's an unfortunate factor of life. Well, I, I think, Sarah, that's uh, what Joanna Byrne was saying, in, in fairness, that uh, there's plenty of drugs and plenty of drug dealers in Drogheda. They're just not blowing their heads off each other at the moment. Uh, Mary says she doesn't believe uh, the will is there among the public to make any real difference when it comes to climate change. She says there's a, a general air of apathy, as far as she can see. The only ones who seem to be taking any notice is the younger generation, young people. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, they're not in any real position to to make a difference. Michael in touch too, wanting to know if uh, the Green Party representatives are living on the same planet as the rest of us. Uh, she, or he says, I'm uh, sorry Michael, Michael says uh, the Green Party's ideas and suggestions just aren't viable. Uh, we don't have the money or the resources to implement them. They keep pushing the electric car agenda but there's very few households that can afford to buy an electric car. Uh, the prices are crazy. Limiting access to power and heating supplies is also not a runner as we head into the autumn and the winter. Michael says the Greens need to, to get their heads out of the clouds and start making suggestions that are more reachable. Well, thank you for sharing those thoughts with us, Michael. Thanks to everybody who was in touch with us uh, today. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 660 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.